Alright, so in constitutional law, I believe the last part where I left off was with Youngstown. But I'm gonna go ahead and give a quick overview of Youngstown just because it is important for the rest of understanding presidential powers. So implied executive powers, we'll say Youngstown is a narrow interpretation of presidential powers, but it is still used uh, today to determine that there may be some broad presidential powers, and a lot of the time Jackson's concurrence is what is followed. Uh, and it gives a three-category situation to determine how this is followed. Uh, first, if the president and Congress align in, in their views uh, of a presidential power within a certain matter, well, then the Cong uh, president is going to have the most power. Second, if Congress is silent as to a matter, you're kind of in this twilight zone where you're going to look at the certain events and circumstances, uh, background, to see if the president has any implied power. And third, if the president and Congress do not align and are in disagreement, well, then the president has the least amount of implied powers, is going to be examined with caution, and the only way that the president is going to have the authority is if he has some kind of constitutional authority. So that's Youngstown. That leads us into United States versus Cortis Wright Export Corp, where this was a situation where the president was limiting uh, weapons that were being exported and due to a conflict and going foreign. And this is our introduction to foreign affairs. We've got, I think, three cases, four cases, five cases. We've got five cases. We'll talk about four today. We'll finish them up tomorrow. Uh, but our first case is going to be United States versus Curtis Wright. We have Dames and Moore versus Reagan. We have Medellin versus Texas. And we have uh, Zivotofsky versus Kerry. I might just call that one Kerry just because I can't pronounce the other name. I'll go ahead and just go over these takeaways. Uh, underneath Curtis Wright, uh, the situation here, it fell underneath Youngstown's first category. Uh, the president and Congress were in align alignment. Congress gave the president explicit authority to restrict this kind of use. And the defendants are saying, uh, sorry, the plaintiffs are saying, no, they didn't have that authority. But this did fall underneath the first category, so presidents are going to have a lot of power. Another thing to note, sorry, I'll just go through these takeaways. First case, it's first takeaway, under Youngstown, it falls underneath the first category, so there's more power. Second takeaway, the president has more power for foreign affairs than he does when acting domestically. This is a foreign affairs case. Third takeaway is that, now this is controversial, is the cases that sovereignty passes directly to the Union after the great, um, break of Great Britain. So this is an implied sovereignty principle. And that kind of leads to the fourth takeaway, where the president is considered the sole organ who represents the United States, the sole person. And that's because of that sovereignty who passes directly into national uh, boundaries or procedures. But those kind of two takeaways are important, and it's important to understand that because this is giving the president a large amount of executive authority. And so this is interpreted broadly, even though Youngstown is interpreted more narrowly. And the fifth takeaway is that uh, this case was decided correctly 
but there are a whole bunch of broad issues with the broad statements regarding the presidential power, specifically the sovereignty statements and the sole organ statement, which kind of leads us into Dames and Moore versus Reagan. What happened here is that Carter had executed an executive agreement with Iran, which is a foreign nation. A little bit of background to this. Yeah, this case deserves some background. There was an issue in Iran where uh, the American embassy uh, was raided and lots of American ambassadors were held hostage. And President Carter did a lot to try and get the hostages free. Uh, some things, ill-advised, looked like an embarrassment on his presidency, uh, specifically helicopters failing above the embassy, uh, rescue efforts failing, uh, military efforts regarding that failing. But President Carter had also done a whole bunch to restrict assets, Iranian assets that the United States had control over and would put liens on them so they weren't accessible. And as a result, Dames Amour, the company here, ended up suing the Iran Iranian government saying, look, what you're doing is wrong and we have a claim against you because we can't get our money being an Iranian company. And so, Dames Amour had initially sued Iran and then ultimately President Carter made an agreement with Iran saying, hey, if you release the hostages, we'll go ahead and dismiss all the claims against you. Uh, all the claims that are occurring from American companies or are occurring on American soil, those will all be dismissed and just free the people. And so President Carter executed that agreement and then shortly after, uh, President Reagan came into office and made an executive order pretty much executing that agreement. So now this really comes into the question of, did the president have the authority to execute that agreement? It wasn't a treaty, so it wasn't done with congressional power. And then did President Reagan have the authority through an executive order, which pretty much acts as a statute, to execute that agreement? So that's pretty much our background. And the question that is relevant here. The answer, yes. Uh, there's a statute that authorized claims to be dismissed. Um, as for the nullification of claims, uh, history points towards a congressional approval despite the silence because Congress didn't say anything here. And so despite the silence, all the history kind of tends to point towards a congressional approval. And so you can say this is kind of an in-between ground between Youngstown's first category and Youngstown's second category. The actions that do fit into the second category are authorized because this would be considered an emergency. Now, this case kind of comes into controversy as well just because of the emergency when do emergencies hit and uh, separation of powers. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things of the court shouldn't tell court, sorry, the president shouldn't tell the courts what to do and how to function. Uh, and in this case, the president told the courts pretty much to drop the claims. Um, but this was approved, and so you could say that this was a broad interpretation except the courts did have a caveat that said, even though this is broad, 
we are going to interpret this narrowly to be cases of only occurring in emergency. Our third case is Medellin versus Texas. We've talked about this case in the past uh, where there, the treaty wasn't self-executing. And even though the president wanted this to happen, he wrote a letter to the court saying, hey, you should make this happen. Uh, the president does not have the unilateral authority to execute a treaty. This has to be done with Congress. And so asking him, the president saying, hey, I want you to do this is not a valid exercise of his presidential power. So the takeaway here is that whenever there's a presidential power case, we're just going to do a Youngstown's analysis. Uh, here, the case fell into the last category uh, where uh, Congress had specifically reserved the right to execute treaties. Our final case is the Kerry case. Uh, this was a situation where uh, Congress uh, had passed a law saying uh, Jerusalem uh, passports would be listed at those born in Jerusalem. Their passports would read that they were born in Israel. And a long time previously, uh, presidents in Congress had not recognized uh, the national uh, the national, the, we'll say the nationality of those born in Jerusalem, whether uh, it was uh, Israel or whether I think the conflict is with Palestine. I'm not as up to date on that as I should, but ultimately we need to look at the Constitution here to see who has power to determine the nationality of countries. Is that going to be Congress? Or is it going to be the president? In this statute, Congress was trying to assert that ability to recognize other countries. But the courts say no. The president is the only person who has that power. And there's a clause for it. It's called the reception clause. Uh, the president is the only person who can represent foreign affairs of this type. And it's because he is, or she, eventually, possibly, is the sole representative of the United States. They receive the ambassadors, they talk, they work, they organize with the foreign affairs. And as a result, the president is the only person, according to the Constitution, to determine that people are, uh, what nationality people are from. So this case is actually different from a Youngstown analysis. Even though most times when we do a presidential power case, we're going to start with Youngstown, this case is the only time when we don't because it's more of a constitutionally based authority rather than a congressional based authority. And what I mean by that is the Constitution specifically gives the president power to do these things. And as a result, because the Constitution did not express Wrestling give Congress power to do these things, Youngstown becomes a little less relevant because we focus more on the constitutional text than we do on a um, concurring opinion within uh, Youngstown. It is important to note, though, that if the Constitution did give equal power to both Congress and the president, Youngstown would come more into uh, view here, uh, resulting in this probably being uh, the third category because it would be directly opposed to who had what power. I won't get into Hamdi today um, just because we only made it through halfway of Hamdi during class. 
But that is a good overview of foreign affairs within the implied presidential powers. And uh, Hamdi is going to get into some of the war-making powers that the president has as well. And I believe we're still going to be using the Youngston analysis. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.